on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. And my name is Sally Rugg. And guess what, Sally? Tell me. Happy 50th! We turn 50. That's incredible. I know you don't want to turn 50 anytime soon. I'm well past it. But this is our 50th edition of On The Job. Time has lost all meaning during the pandemic. And so I can't tell if this feels like it's been a couple of weeks or 10 years. But happy 50th. Happy 50th. What is the wedding anniversary material of choice for 50th? Oh, I don't know. I can't believe you haven't got me a ruby. A platinum something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a good question. What is that? There must be some symbolic 50th anniversary landmark. Yeah, we'll have to find This is my out. first ever 50th anniversary landmark, so mm. I don't know. I'm in new territory here. We'll have to find out because I know that the listeners do come to On The Job Podcast <laughs> for this sort of information. Hey, um, thank you to everybody who's listening who's been here since the beginning. We really appreciate you. We do. And well, I appreciate what you're doing at the moment. But before we meet our very special guest for our 50th anniversary, tell us about the new campaign that you've got your teeth stuck right into. Oh, my gosh. I can finally tell you all. You so can. When I left my previous job, keen listeners might remember that I wasn't able to say what my new role was. We missed those disclaimers. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if I should start adding them on. No, I, I, I won't. So my new gig is I'm heading up a new organisation that's been spearheaded by... Vic Trades Hall Council and Kevin Rudd. Don't know if you remember him from the Prime Minister years. And it is being set up to try and get this Royal Commission into the Murdoch media monopoly. Oh, where do I sign up for that one? Yeah, so I, I reckon some of our listeners, or maybe all of them, might have signed the huge petition last year, 500,000 signatures calling for a Royal Commission into media diversity. And so this organisation is set up to deliver what that petition calls for. Okay. Well, give the email address or the website that people who haven't signed up can actually go there and do that right now as they listen to this. Oh, we would love you to sign up. It's afmrc.org.au. And so those initials are Australians for a Murdoch Royal Commission. Yeah, would love you to sign up so you can receive our e- emails and I can tell you all about what our big plans are. And you know what? I will never need a disclosure on the top of this podcast because it's honestly not going to be too long before News Corp come for me and try to destroy me. So even if I put a disclosure at the top of this, like, it doesn't matter. They'll find something and, and We got your back. We got your back oh, for sure. You, it's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. It's our 50th episode, and it's time to meet our special guest for number 50. Sally McManus, welcome to On The Job. The Secretary of the ACTU has uh, joined us in the On The Job party room for our 50th edition. Hey, that's good because I turned 50 this year in lockdown by myself. Oh, so, no. I don't Happy know. birthday. Thank you. I, as an introvert, I actually, to tell you the truth, I didn't mind it. It meant that you got out of all of the things that people might want to organise and you didn't need an excuse, so that was good. Yeah. Those pesky friends always trying to <laughs> celebrate Kick you. start a party. Demonstrate their love. Is there a special material for 50th birthday or is that only wedding anniversaries? Oh, God, you're asking me. I'm the least qualified person to be able to answer that. <laughs> I really don't know. I, I was thinking when you guys were talking, is it diamonds or something? Like it's something like sounds that. sounds like it's important enough for 50. And mm. rare enough. We'll go with that. Okay. We'll get you a diamond from... 
a cubic zirconium that looks like a diamond at get, least. Get onto it, Francis. Where's <laughs> the diamond? <laughs> Got to get that sorted. How are you? How's your 2021 been, Sally? And, and I guess, you know, the, your lockdown experience throughout this year, given that you've worked so hard throughout it too. Yeah, well, like everyone else, I think that we just had this delusion this time last year or, or a bit later than this time last year. The whole country did over January that we were post-COVID and everyone was talking post-COVID and, you know, that was something that happened. And, yeah, for a lot of us uh, that were in lockdown, it wasn't – it was pretty bad. And for people who lost their jobs, it was very bad. And for people who got sick, obviously, too. But we were going, oh, great, got through that. And I think that it was a, quite a shock to everyone to find ourselves in a situation where that wasn't the case. And I don't think I hadn't certainly factored in that, that yet another long lockdown and just to be at the other end of that and to be in a situation where, you know, Australia's pretty much almost to the point of come first in the world in terms of vaccination numbers. It's been which a wild is, ride. Which is good. I mean, on one hand, that's fantastic, but it's sort of weird opening up for those states that are at the moment knowing that, you know, it's not COVID zero. Like when Victoria came out of lockdown last time, like you just wanted to go celebrate like a, a massive achievement. This time it doesn't feel like that at all because you know you're opening up and you know there's a great unknown and part of that is is about what's going to happen to the healthcare system and obviously to people getting sick. So I think there's a fair bit of anxiety around. Yeah, I really, really feel that deeply. And I think I have found particularly weird sending my daughter back to school, even though I'm like really thankful she's going back. I'm really thankful schools are open. I completely back the decision. I understand why they're opening with so many daily case numbers and all the rest of it. And yet all of us have lived in a a world where like case numbers are something, well, certainly I have felt very fearful of and very worried about. And so it's like completely counterintuitive to see how, you know, thousands of case numbers and then be like, bye honey, have a lovely day at school. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll tell you something that might help. I've started getting obsessed instead of of the case numbers. What is the hospital rates and the last uh, week it's started to obviously in New South Wales they've been going down for a while now and it's started to do just today in Victoria as well and it appears to be obviously none of us are experts but that sort of magic number of when you do get close to 80% double vaxxed and we're going to get over 90% as a country and you look at those countries around the world that have achieved that it reduces it to the level of, of a bad flu year, even mm. less. So there are things to be hopeful about now. Just got to let go of those daily case numbers because they don't mean as much. It's hard to shift the thinking though because we were so focused on it. I mean, when you look think back to the start of the pandemic in when we first had to, for instance, move out of our workplaces and I think I remember the date, March 17th, 2020. That was the date they were saying start working from home. I remember sitting in my office and talking to one of my colleagues and saying, well, you know, We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, this will sort of be tough, but we'll be okay. Did you have any cons- concept at all at how long and arduous and difficult this was going to be? So? No way, not unless I had like some special superpowers <laughs> that could see into the future and just something that was completely unknown. What, like, you don't? I- <laughs> even like, uh, you know, the idea of a pandemic, like seriously, was just a, a uh, fantasy movie, not really being able to understand what that meant. Obviously, parts of the world have understood that. And people who also uh, live through HIV as well, but for me, no, no real sense. I like 
and pretty much everyone else, I think. And I think the bigger question I've been reflecting on now is how is it going to change us, like mm. individually and collectively? Uh, for those in Australia who've been through really long lockdowns, how is that going to change the way we interact, the way we think, the way we operate? Or will it be that we are going to just go back to the way we were eventually, like whether that be one month or two years, or are there going to be deeper changes? And one thing that I think is that um, obviously a whole lot of people continued to uh, go outside to work. So it's not as if people working from home weren't working. Like people say, oh, people going back to work, everyone's been working unless you've lost your job. But this sense of isolation, so uh, especially those who live, uh, live alone, but even those who don't, you've been cut off from everyone You've been forced to sort of uh, confront that and there was no getting away from it and it wasn't because of your own personal failing which can often lead to depression obviously for people when they're isolated in that way. It's a collective experience for everyone and people have found it hard but have we actually learned something about that in terms of not needing like the same type of interactions that we had before? Like are we going to be more stronger people in a way uh, because of what we've been through? I would love for that to be the case. I know personally, right now, I don't feel like a stronger person. I really feel like my reserves have been completely expended. Yeah, like my resilience is down at the moment. But I wonder if, yeah, when that replenishes, we'll be stronger. Do you feel as though you've learnt more about yourself though? Well, I ended up getting a whole bunch of lockdown kittens. So (laughs) I didn't actually have a lot of time to myself because I was obsessing over cats um <laughs> no I I I do yeah I mean I really have learned a lot about myself going into lockdown coincided with several other things in my life which we don't have to bore the listeners with but yeah I definitely do yeah because you know I think I sort of feel in a way prior to lockdown most of us are on some type of autopilot it's not as if we were not consciously going about everything we were doing but there was just a pace to the world and a way of being that we didn't sort of question and all of a sudden that was disrupted. And so what is that going to mean in terms of, I think that's given people a long time to reflect on what's important to them and their lives and their relationships with other people. It's also shown, I guess, the gaps in society and, and the, the varied experiences in communities. For instance, my feeling is that the pandemic has not been a burden equally shared. It has very much been a uh, vector that has shown that class is still a very big thing in this country. Opportunity is massively varied in terms of how much access you have to it. And it's been a disease and a pandemic that's been carried by working people in the most precarious circumstances. And it opens up that conversation about, well, what are we going to do about it? Because we can no longer ignore it and we can no longer deny it's true. Um, Just a little story on that point, um, Francis and Sally, is that in my position, I get to talk to people at a whole lot of levels. So obviously, you know, working people in all their different jobs, but also the rich and the powerful as well. Not all of them, like some of the rich and powerful we never see and we never talk to, but (laughs) there's ones that I've had to deal with more often uh, in the last 18 months. And some of those people, you get some insight into their lives because all of a sudden your, your conversations are in their living rooms. And you look at some of their living rooms and you just go, oh my God, you are certainly living a different life to the rest of us. And what I started noticing is that the really well-off people started blurring their backgrounds a lot. And then you'd find out that (laughs) 
they were doing their Zoom meeting with me from Port Douglas, like some sort of, you know, freedom enclave of really rich people in, in Port Douglas while the rest of us were struggling wherever we were. And so just a bit of an insight into, you know, not everyone was under the same stress as everyone else. And then there's where you go to the experience amongst working people has just been also very varied, but the common uh, denominator is a a massive amount of stress, a Mm. massive amount of stress, whether that be financial stress, whether that be uh, going out, facing an unknown deadly virus and being the people working, whether it be if you're in the aged care or whether you're in healthcare or whether uh, you've lost a job and your income. So all of those things, the very different experiences, the common theme is um, a lot of stress. So- as both of you were just saying, I think it is undeniable that there is this two tiers or perhaps more tiers, but we'll stick with two, sort of two tiers of, of work and of comfort has been exposed. What do you think are some ways to change that, to turn that tide? Well, that's a very big question. <laughs> that's a very, very big question. Well, I think we need to have a explicit goal of, of addressing inequality. Some of us like feel like broken records saying that, but obviously it's not uh, something that's got better. At the same time the whole pandemic was happening, we were watching billionaires, you know, blast off in their rockets to go um, wherever they were going out off this planet. And it just seemed to be, to me, that ultimate symbol of, you know, something's really seriously wrong when you've got some people living that life and doing things that are absolutely not necessary and you've got the rest of us, let alone those people in other parts of the world that don't even have vaccines at the moment, um, suffering a different one. So, you know, a united front amongst all of us um, who are in the first group, uh, you know, demanding from the second group a more fair and equal society. It's a pretty simple ask, isn't it? And it's one that can be achieved if we can start to deal with one of the other aspects that's been exposed by the pandemic, and that is the nature of insecure work. And just when the pandemic struck hard in March and April last year, those long lines, we'll never forget them, at the front of Centrelink, so people just suddenly just, uh, discovered that they had no work and no safety net. And it, it, we talked sort of academically about so many people in casual or insecure work, but this was you know on our streets for the first time. It's something that the, a lot of people within business might like to return to as business as usual, but it, it gives us a chance, doesn't it, to push back on that and say, hey, we really need to deal with this now because it's not good for communities at large in the wider society if people don't have that job security to plan their lives around. Yeah, there's lots of things about this. First of all, for ages, we've all got used to the fact that jobs have become more insecure and people have just coped Mm. like you do. Like you go and get three jobs, you have casual jobs all the time, you've got gig jobs now and and that's just life and you need to make the best of it. And for a while, like that's been – you're not easy for, for a lot of people, but they have been able to make it work. And so it was a big shock, I think, collectively for lots of people to millions of people lose their jobs overnight. You know, that never, ever normally happens. So a big shock for those people in insecure work. And then secondly, people who aren't waking up to how big a problem it is. And part of that waking up was not just those Centrelink lines, although that certainly had a lot to do with it, was understanding that how come there's people working in aged care that are casual workers and have like three jobs across different aged care homes? Like there's permanent jobs there. Like there's 24-7 shifts. Like those places are operating all the time. Those bosses could give people enough 
hours and permanency in all those places, but they don't and they don't do it because they, they can and because it's cheaper. That's why they do it. So that really showed just what a weakness it is for our country where we have two sets of rights for people, people not in secure jobs, not even having basic things like sick leave. The other thing about the last 18 months, it also shows if governments want to do something about it, they can. So, you know, for a brief period of time, we didn't have homelessness. For a brief period of time, we had free childcare. For a brief period of time, we lifted up job seeker so that people could live on that. We didn't manufacturing masks or vaccines in Australia because we just said goodbye to our manufacturing industry and we fixed that. Governments fixed it. So it shows that if there's a will, we can do it. It's just a matter of governments having the will to address this huge issue, which is insecure work. You mentioned, well, we mentioned a couple of minutes ago about the daily case numbers and we're opening up into a world where it's, you know, different to COVID zero and people working in care industries, particularly the health system, particularly hospitals, are completely stretched at the moment and will be for many more weeks um, as hospitals heave under surge capacity in COVID cases on top of all the other people that they have to look look after on every any given day. And like I've been thinking for a long time that when this is over, so to speak, like air quotes around that <laughs> phrase, what can we do to celebrate these people? How do we say thank you to these workers in a way that is going to be really meaningful? Well, these workers are already being pretty clear about what they want. So you look at the aged care workers who've been through an absolutely horrendous time. There was a whole Royal Commission to work out exactly what is needed in that area. Those workers are totally clear that they want ratios. So that just basically means that they have jobs that are manageable, that they can give quality care to the residents and that they're not run off their feet having to oversee, a, a, you know, the profits of those private companies whilst, you know, the terrible level of support for, for people in those aged care facilities, they're saying what they want. In the case of uh, healthcare workers and, and childcare workers, all these feminised industries, they've been saying for a long time, we want our work recognised. We want it recognised for the value that it has. And its value is about saving lives. It's about saving lives. And for too long as a society, we've said implicitly because it's those jobs that women have done for a long period of time, they're not worth as much. And so they all should get a pay rise. Do you not like my parade idea? Uh, listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I didn't say no to it. It's not. It's not an either either or. Like I think. I think they take the parade as well as the pay rise. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, like anybody who has a loved one in aged care, in early childhood care, in any space where they are being taken care of, anybody who has an interaction with these care workers knows how incredible they are. How dedicated to their jobs they are and what enormous trust each of us put in them you know like handing over your toddler to someone like here you go for the day or you know please take care of my elderly mother through the night I can think of little jobs that are more valuable and it's I think completely disgraceful the conditions of salaries they receive. Yeah unfortunately pay rises don't fall from the sky do they and it won't be just because people are grateful or they said thank you very much it'll only be through those workers being in their union and pushing really hard like it's the only way we've been able to achieve things and 
change isn't going to come from outside. It will come from those workers themselves. And if we're not those workers out them, themselves, we've got to get behind them. But, you know, they're they going to want to build a demand and a demand for better. We're going to emerge from the uh, pandemic in 2022 in at a different speed. So some states are going to be more fully vaxxed and ready to go, uh, whilst others are a little slower. Queensland and Western Australia in particular are not quite the same. Is that going to cause issues for workers because of that, because you know, people people travel between states. You know, people in logistics chains travel between states, driving trucks and whatnot. What's the view on how how we manage that? I think that um, the the issue of different rules in different states has obviously been there for the whole eighteen months, and those workers that have to go across state borders are already dealing with that particular issue. Like all those essential workers are still in that situation, and. I think that um, most working people in the states of Queensland and, and WA are really, really glad that they haven't had to go through what the workers did in New South Wales and Victoria, obviously too, um, ones in Tassie and, and Northern Territory and South Australia too. So the fact that they can choose a different path and that path being let's get to 90%, like let's aim for a 90% like the other ones are, and then open knowing that the risk of death is small, like small numbers then is just such a privilege and that they've got that and they've earned it. And, and certainly um, if I lived in any of those states, I'd, I'd feel like that too. And I think that that's the fact that their premiers are wanting to keep them safe, like that's sort of the, the essential thing. It really annoys me that some of our leaders have just gone about playing politics and, you know, pitting leaders against other leaders and, you know, attacking people and really people don't need that level of stress like we're all sort of heading to the same outcome and the fact that they're making those decisions I think they're fair enough. For people listening if you want to feel inspired I have been loving the hashtag Vax Solidarity. Have either of you seen it? It's so good. I've only seen it on Twitter although it might be on other platforms but it's union members taking photos of themselves as they're getting vaccinated and it's just like Really, really inspiring. So, yeah, you should all check it out if you have the Bluebird website. Sally, last week, Francis said just like off the cuff that like maybe there'd be an election by the end of the year. That was my guesstimate. (laughs) But since you said that, I've put money on it. (laughs) Since you said that, I've heard a couple more sort of, you know, mumbles about like, oh, well, it could be December the. 14th could be December the 5th or whatever and how this could be Morrison's strategy of saving the furniture. I wondered if you have a view on any of this and what issues do you think will be fought on? Where's your money? Where's your money? Well, I think it suits uh, Morrison to have those rumours swirling because what happens then is people start panicking or putting money into those people who do have money into advertising campaigns and committing to them and all of that. And I'll just say this, today the Liberal Party party room, the Coalition party room, endorse changes to the electoral laws and those changes are US style Trump type changes that are going to make it much harder for people to vote because they're going to have to go through more hoops in terms of proving their ID especially in First Nations communities and also the issue of different ways of counting the Senate vote that's going to benefit parties like One Nation and United Australia parties so you know, given that they've just endorsed that, that's got to go through Parliament. I think they're going to want to do that before the election. I think they're doing that because he can see the polls and he's worried about it. So he wants to um, change the rules to suit himself. So 
that's my theory. That's what I think they're up to. Just to like yes and what you said. First of all, if that rumour is going to help Morrison, I completely withdraw. I haven't even heard it. You, and you, cer- you certainly haven't heard Just blame it me. on the podcast. <laughs> But the law you're referring to around requiring voters to show their ID, if I could be so bold to just talk on that for one second, like on first impression, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense to stop people doing voter fraud. There's no evidence of voter fraud in Australia. Like there's, this is a non-issue. This does not exist. But what this law, if it passes, will do is completely disenfranchise everyone who doesn't have an ID. And those people are, as Sally mentioned, like disproportionately Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. They're people experiencing uh, insecure housing, people who are you know, pushed to the margins of society because of addiction or mental illness. And it also affects a huge proportion of the transgender community who, depending on which state you live in, it is really difficult to change your identity mm. documents. It's exorbitantly expensive. In some states it requires surgery. Like it's really onerous. It's a and, deeply cynical thing to yeah. do. And so all this law is doing, like it is not, you know, the proposal does not solve a problem, but it does disenfranchise enormous groups of, of people. And I, I think it, it must be stopped. Yeah. Do you think they'd be doing it because they want it to be fairer? Yeah. No, I, I wonder, do not think so. Yeah, and I like I don't want to speak for every person in those groups because, you know, minorities are not homogenous groups. However, the evidence would suggest that like not a lot of those people are voting for the coalition. It's a rotten law and a rotten suggestion it needs to be fought. So we're gonna to have to fight an election at some point, Sally. What did you learn from the last election campaign, which was uh, you know, brutal? The outcome was brutal in terms of uh, the expectation that many people had and uh, a lot of lessons to be drawn. What were the key ones that you'll be taking into 2022? Well, um, people don't like talking about it, but the influence of Clive Palmer's billionaire money, I I think, was very significant. Um, Speaking of Trump-esque moments. Exactly, exactly. And for him, it's small change that he spent on the election. For him, it's nothing. And the same is happening all over again. And cynically looking for whatever issues are going to be able to peel off people on the margins and at the moment, like getting behind the anti-vax message, um, which isn't just a matter of, you know, someone's opinions, they might feel like something in the election, it's actually about people's health and their lives, is what he's doing. And I think, you know, that's going to happen. And that uh, because of the concentration of our media and on top of that billionaire money, I think that this is of big concern. I think the issues in the election are going to be shaped by COVID and as we know, people have had different experiences of that in Australia. It's not a uniform experience and it's not even uniform within different states anyway. But I think that that will make a difference in people's view about Morrison's leadership and how he handled that and how he handled the vaccine rollout and, you know, can't help thinking back to the issue of the bushfires and how they're all actually connected, like... uh, He's never really there when you need him. And you watch all this stuff happening now with the 2050 targets and about the plan to get there. And I just think all this carry on about his plan's not good enough. I just think, well, even if he had a plan, they're not capable of executing it. Like I just watched the whole absolute tragic debacle, which was a rollout of the vaccine in aged care 
and we were like deeply involved in this in terms of talking regularly every week all the time with the minister and the department and just how incapable they were of doing something that was actually logistically hard but simple as well like you know where the aged care homes are you know where the people are that you're trying to get vaccinated you know what you've got to do to achieve it and they couldn't even do that and so I think when we get to the election, you know, the issue of uh, Scott Morrison's leadership will be will be something that's in people's minds. But it's interesting you bring it up, isn't it? Because the Palmer money, I think it was $68 million he spent in the last federal election. He'll spend as much or more next time. I don't think he's interested in actually winning seats for anyone in his party. He's just using that leverage to shave off 4% of the vote, 5% of the vote in key marginal seats and swing preference flows, and that gives him the leverage with whichever government, usually the obviously a conservative government in his view, to achieve his ends. And it's a really cynical form of politics. Yeah, I'm sure what happens, I don't have any evidence that this is true, but closer to an election, he knows that the major parties are are doing their polling in all the seats and they can see how big, you know, his vote may be in some places and the amount of money that he's dumping in into advertising and the fact that no one can compete with him. Labor and Liberal together can't compete with him. And then, of course, there'll be, I'm sure there are discussions about preferences and about where preferences go and billionaire like Clive Palmer doesn't do things for free, put it that way. This is not for now. We'll have to talk about it next time you come on. But I've always been fascinated about a radical proposal to restrict political party, like election campaign funding to taxpayer money. And so, yeah, we don't really want parties spending our taxes on campaigning, but it would mean that there aren't these sort of like big whale investors yeah, or democracy level the playing the field <laughs> hidden hidden trusts yeah oh that yeah. resonates doesn't yes. it yes yes it does before we go we do want to ask you about something really controversial um and we're springing this on you so I'm really sorry hit me with it Sally <laughs> I've had them all <laughs> so see if I can cope the Guardian recently reported oh please don't raise a bird count <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> I've dodged this question. So the uh, you're not down with the superb fairy wren. For listeners, for people listening along at home, um, the Guardian uh, bird of the bird year does bird of the year. So I was onto the bird count. That's the next thing on the birders' calendar. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. and this year was the superb fairy wren. How can it lose with a name like the superb yeah. fairy wren? Like it's self-branded itself as the best thing that's ever flown. You know there is a splendid fairy wren. Ooh. <gasps> wow. so you get to choose between splendid or something. Ooh, these fairy wrens. They big yeah. themselves up. Very flamboyant <laughs> name. It is a beautiful they little are blue very bird. Flamboyant. Would you consider yourself a twitcher? I don't identify as a twitcher. Don't put me in your boxes. <laughs> <laughs> so, but a, a lover of uh, of of ornithologies and birds. Yeah. Um, have you spotted the superb fairy wren in the wild? Listen, anyone who lives in Southeast <laughs> Australia has spotted this. Oh, okay. If you haven't, yeah, just haven't been paying attention. And so, it's a really normy <laughs> bird. Yeah, it is. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's everywhere, mate. Oh, there you just go. Got to look Need closer. to look up. Yeah. Who, so it sounds like. No one got all the votes. It's everywhere. <laughs> well, that's my point. And that's why this particular, you've brought up this controversy. You've opened this can of worms, Sally. So, <laughs> I will. I, this birds. is not going to make me friends, but I do get really, really agitated each year when it comes to this, you know, voting over the bird of the year because people who don't pay a lot of attention to birds go, oh, I think I might vote in this. And what do they vote for? They vote for what they see in their backyard. So the bloody, you know, as much as I love them, like magpies, um, yeah, kookaburras. um, I love magpies. The way that Sally just spit out kookaburra, like kookaburra. I love kookaburras too. Rainbow lorikeet. Oh, I love the rainbows. Like 
for for someone like me who who works hard for your birds, yeah, and finds <laughs> joy in finding the ones that are hard to find and really appreciates them, you just go, oh no! And that year when the bloody ibis won, I was just like, I was about to just like, say, don't ever talk to me about like bird of the year. But what I did this year is I basically tried to every day like vote for ones on the edges, like ones that that someone like me would like. There's a whole lot of parrots that are really quite rare that you. You know, you run around the country trying to find, and other ones that people don't know about. You don't pick them because people don't know about them. You pick them because they're special when you find them. But really, my favourite bird of all, which I didn't get to vote for, drum roll, please, is the wedge-tailed eagle. Like magnificent beast. Yeah, like so definitely. Like if I, I would just like crash a car and pull up if I see one, or when I see them, I absolutely love them. They're there's controversy about whether they're the largest eagle in the world because there's a harpy eagle too, and they're they're heavier. But I think our wedge tail is probably the biggest on on wingspan. There's also the monkey eating eagle in the Philippines, but um, our wedge tail eagle is is awesome. And what are your views on pelicans? <laughs> Do you think they're <laughs> is as a trade unionist, I know when I've been wound up. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, dear. Sally, thank you so much for being on our 50th yeah, edition. No and we, we really appreciate your time. Are you, is there a bird on the list for the summer that you're going out searching for? Oh, it's before? a really good point, but, like, they obviously we can't travel everywhere. I was going to go on my 50th birthday to my favourite um, place, which is in um, Cape York, um, right up at Portlands Road. And so there's birds that only come down from Papua New Guinea and so I haven't seen a Paradise Kingfisher, which I really, really want to see, uh, but I can't go there in the wet because we can't go there. But, uh, yeah, so next year hopefully. Hopefully 2022 delivers you a Paradise Kingfisher, Sally McManus. Yeah. Sally McManus, <laughs> Secretary of the ACTU, with us here on On The Job. That's it for another edition, our 50th edition. Thank you, Sally Rugg. Thank was you, Francis Leach. We can find you at Sally Rugg on the Twitter sphere and elsewhere and remind people where they can get involved with the campaign for the um, Murdoch Royal Commission again. The website is afmrc.org.au or you can just tune into Sky News because they're getting stuck in already. So <laughs> hear the latest from Andrew Bolt. Go to the, the, the website. Campaign. Don't go to Sky News. Happy Thank you. anniversary, guys. <laughs> Thank Congrats. you, Sally. We'll catch you on the next edition of On The Job. <laughs>